Welcome to Unapologetically Black Unicorns. Welcome to Black History Month, Black Futures Month. And we're going to do a little bit of a throwback Tuesday today. I thought it would be really important to go back and listen to the first episode with Dr. Sherelle Bellamy entitled Lift As We Climb. And, you know, it reminded me about why I started this podcast in the first place. And that's all about representation. Um, It's so important for people, you know, living with mental health conditions, substance use conditions, to be able to see themselves represented in the work and living with these conditions. And a lot of times we don't see that, we don't hear that, people lose hope, and they think they're alone. Well, you know, you're not alone. You're amongst all of these wonderful, unapologetically Black unicorns. And during Black History Month, Black Futures Month, as I like to call it, we're going to go back in history, listen to episode one, listen to a few other episodes while you're at it. And we're going to go into the future as we continue to do the important work of hearing the stories, the experiences, and the work of Black and Brown folks who are doing tremendous things in the mental health and behavioral health world and giving hope to others who need to see and hear people who look and sound like them. So here we go. Hi, Sherelle. How are you? I am so happy to welcome you to this conversation, to our Unapologetically Black Unicorns podcast, because you, my friend, are an unapologetically Black unicorn. If I have ever met one before, you are one in the flesh. And um, I'm just so happy that you're here. And what did we learn about each other just recently that we didn't know? That June 10th is? Our birthday, yeah. Happy birthday. We're we're birthday birthday twins. See, that even says we're Black unicorns right there. (laughs) (laughs) We have to see how many are actually born on June 10th, right? So June um, 10th is a special day. It is. It is. So I want people to kind of have a sense of some of the work that you do and how you got into it. So my current position is that I'm an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Yale University's um, School of Medicine. And I'm also the Director of Peer Support Services and Research, the Director of the Lived Experience Transformational Leadership Academy. I am the Interim Director for the State of Connecticut's Office of Recovery Community Affairs. It's interesting because I I never thought that I would be doing work even in the mental health space. You know, my heart actually is uh, still is in the work of HIV. So I started doing work in HIV. I was doing safer sex workshops uh, to LGBTQI uh, folks back in the day. So when I went to graduate school, I went to graduate school to study HIV. I happened upon a job. You know, Black folk, we need money. We need to work. <laughs> what? No, get and, out. <laughs> True and that. so I started working with Carol Mulberry. She actually happened to be doing um, research on supported education, which mm. is 
as we know, uh, an intervention to assist uh, adults who are returning back to post-secondary education. And I was like, oh, okay, that's me. I mean, I, you know, I certainly throughout, you know, college was struggling and dealing with my own mental health issues. So I talked to her. I really got jazzed about the work. She mm-hmm. was working with Justice and Mental Health um, Organization, Jim Ho. And, you know, coming from the field of HIV, it was so different because I didn't feel like there was this us and them. I felt like we were all in it together. You know, I, you know, in HIV, I felt like we hugged each other. Like we, mm-hmm. we embraced life. And, and so when I saw that Carol Mowbray was working with this organization called Jim Ho, I think I, and, and she also had just written this book called Consumers as Providers. You know, that was like the 2000 Mm -hmm. or something. But I had no idea that it actually was so different than what mental health was about. Yeah. You know? Yes. It it was good that I entered it in that way, though. Mm -hmm. So when you started working in mental health, did you have this sense of, you know, being able to use your lived experience, especially as, you know, a Black woman, to kind of inform some of the work that you're doing, peer work, or even, um, you know, even within supported empl- um, supported education, which we use so rarely for folks with, um, especially, quote unquote, serious mental illnesses, air right. quotes. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I hadn't, again, I had no idea of psychosocial rehabilitation. None of these concepts, you know, really came into existence in my life growing up, you know, in Trenton, New Jersey, by way of South Carolina, uh, you know, we didn't really talk about like mental health at all. So coming to Michigan and getting sort of thrown into this field, it was reawakening for me. I would go to conferences. I don't know if you remember at the time it was um, the International Association of Psych Rehab, IASPRES, Later, yes. they became USPRA and then PRN, you know. Yes. But when they were, um, I asked for, that was my first conference that I went to where there were people, you know, who were just out about their mental, that I have mental health, you know, experience, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Period. And they were in rooms with researchers. And honestly, you didn't know who, who was who, who had a PhD, what their titles were. I mean, it was so super laid back. And the other thing that was really interesting about those conferences, people used to call you out. So you, if you're doing a research project, uh, the people in the audience would say, how many people in your group are people with mental illness, for instance? Yeah. Um, yeah. I know the, the term people in recovery wasn't being used at that time. Uh-huh. And so it, early, I was just like, I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> oh, what up? <laughs> so let me ask you a question. How many black and brown folks were at those kind of conferences? Zero, though. <laughs> well, there was one, you. Oh, yeah, of course, it was one. Actually, there were, you know, outside in Michigan, particularly outside Detroit, there really aren't that many Black folk, period. So mm-hmm. I would say that uh, even in the international or the national um, conferences, yeah, there were never too many Black folk. I mean, at the time, uh, I think Anita Purnell Arnold became the uh, president of um, IASPRES. 
So she was a black woman and she was amazing. And so mm -hmm. just seeing her in that role was also inspiring for me. She was outspoken around the issues um, and particularly around bringing the issues around diversity. And um, we had the African-American caucus, the Latino caucus, et cetera. So I just happened to land, you know, in this field at, a, at, at the right time. Wow. And so you got to meet people like, um, so Jackie McKinney, Celia Brown, Kathy Cave. Yeah. Uh, wait, and did you know Gail, Gail Green? Did you know her actually? I know you got a Gail Green award from, I can't remember who it was, NARPA? No, who was it? The Pearl. Um, oh, you got the Pearl Ella Johnson? Yes, yes. Okay, yes. yeah, yeah. Pearl, Pearl, Pearl's one of ours out here, so yes, we'll claim her. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I um, am really interested, too, in um, how people, how many people understand the history of the uh, consumer, survivor, ex-patient, peer, has all these names now, movement, um, especially as it pertains to people of color that you, you, know, you bring up some of these names and like, well, we don't know who, who that is. And so, you know, trying to also document, I know there's some people doing some work and really documenting who are these folks because we just didn't land here. You know, we're standing on the shoulders of, of others who, though there was a movement afoot, sometimes we had to bring our folding chair to the table or like Jackie McKinney and Celia set up, set up our own table. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But yeah. even there, it's like, there just really aren't that many people and there's definitely not um, recognition. I remember, Kiris, when I first heard that you were going to be speaking at, it was called INAPS, then the, you know, the International Association yeah. of Support. And um, I used to always complain because I'm like, where are the Black folk involved with that? And then, and then they were like, oh, Kiris has got to be the keynote. And I was like, who's Kiris? Yeah. Right? And I'm like sitting here and like, and Larry was like, oh, you don't know who Karis is? And I'm like, how come you didn't tell me? You know, my boss is Larry Davidson. I'm like, how come you didn't tell me who Karis is? And so, um, you know, I always joke that they try to keep us apart. <laughs> <laughs> well, I used to, but I, I used to say, look, don't stand too, look, we can't have more than two of us standing together because if it's three, you know, people are going to say we're up to something. So like exactly. disperse, we would like have more than three, like, disperse, everybody disperse kind of as a joke, but it's not a joke. It's not a because joke. Because indeed, um, you know, nobody would say anything if other folks were congregating together or talking together or working together where, you know, on the other hand, when Black folks do it, it's kind of like, well, what are they up to? What, what are they trying to take over? And it's like, we're not, no, we're trying to do what we need to do. Exactly. Uh, I was speaking to another uh, person, Karen Howard from MHA, and, uh, you know, she's their uh, policy director, I think is policy advocacy director, I think is her title. And she said, <laughs> she said uh, yeah, I wanted to listen to this um, uh, testimony when uh, uh, Representative John Lewis was alive and I was one of the people testifying and she said, yeah, I want to hear this person with lived experience testify. She didn't know who I was, which is fine. I am not that like, pop not, not popular, but well-known, right? So she said, when she was looking at the screen, she's like, oh wait, what? She's black? <laughs> and then I had never met her and seen her either. So when we finally got to see each other, I was like, but wait, what? You're black? So yeah, it's kind of like, do we need a secret handshake? Do we need like a like a bat signal? Like, what do we need? Do you think? Yeah, I, you know, I'm I'm hoping that there's change now, and because I, I know there will be, because we're going to make sure that happens. But unfortunately, I think that I do think that there's truth to it. I, I feel like people kept us away from each other, 
and even if it was unintentionally and and in doing so uh it was a disservice because i know so many people particularly black women who also have kind of left yes you know because they weren't being supported and so in some ways i i often feel like i you know survived a bunch of mess yeah and and, and that's why i'm still here because i mm-hmm. survived it and also because I've had opportunities that other people didn't get. Mm-hmm. And I try to embrace those opportunities um, so I don't get too sad about, you know, feeling like, why am I like the chosen one, so to speak, you know? Yes. And when that happens, how do you um, also mentor or bring up others so that they don't have the same experiences that, you know, we're talking about right now? Yeah. I mean, you do a lot of uh, participatory research, so a person doesn't have to be a a PhD researcher, but they still can participate in some of the research you're doing or the programs you're doing in in leadership and um, in roles. Would that be about accurate? That's very accurate. You know, again, I think that the, the work that I've done in HIV really centers me around community and the importance of community and, uh, and embracing life. And even though for many years I was suicidal, just always in and out of psychiatric ER. I used to joke, but it was true. They actually didn't, um, they would just send me home because they said I had goals. So I could come up with you know a bunch of goals to get me out of there. But I think that what's really important to me is and I know I used the slogan, um, Let That We Climb, from the National Colored Women's League. And I fell in love with that slogan many years ago. It's about, to me, grabbing hold of those next to me so that we're climbing together. Mm-hmm. I'm actually pretty good at leading things. And I recognize that mm-hmm. I'm not an expert in everything. And I need, but I need experts around me that can do all of those things that I can't even do that well, but, but, you know, but I'm good at, you know, uh, directing. And I also just feel that most of us haven't been able to, to have the opportunities. So I, working in particularly predominantly white institutions, I see how sometimes people get opportunities just by calling. They just have the nerve to pick up the phone and call and ask the principal investigator or the director, can I come work with you? Or it's because yes. their grandfather knew the person, et cetera, and you know, right, 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 they right. can get in. And we just don't have those same opportunities, particularly for um, Black folk, or uh, and I will um, also say, uh, or other people with lived experience uh, as well. Yeah. Um, we, we're not even like invited to even be in those uh, spaces. Yeah, I mean, you said some really powerful things that make me think back, like when you were talking about lift as we climb, it's antithetical to the crab theory, right? (laughs) Where the crabs are trying to get out of the pot and they push people down. I mean, push people, push the crabs down to save themselves and let the other crabs like become dinner. But lift as we climb, it would be like, no, we, we all got to get out of here. Um, I, I don't, it's no good if I get out of here and you all die because I'll just be alone out there and I'll get killed anyway versus kind of saying, no, we need to kind of figure out a way collectively to um, rise up or, or, or lift, us, uh, lift ourselves up. So I just, I just love that. 
And then the other thing you were you said, which was like, yeah, people just call up on the phone and where we might not do that naturally or know that we could do that or think when we have done it, somebody says, well, yeah, you know, they needed that black person, exactly. <laughs> you know, so then we're reluctant to do it because we don't want to be seen as the token. Exactly. Um, and it reminds me of, and I don't know if you, um, you know, encountered this in um, supported education, but when I was going to college, my, my parents said, look, if you need a tutor, go get a tutor. If you need one, not, not saying you might need necessarily need one, but if you do go get one. Uh-huh. And then you look around and I'm like, I don't see any of my white counterparts getting a tutor. So I'm not getting a tutor. Of course, what I didn't know is they were being tutored. Yeah. And when I actually went into college admissions for part of my career, I had to help students recognize that, you know, do what you need to do. And know that other people are doing the same, even if you don't see them do it. So if you think that people aren't using tutors, they aren't using supports, that they aren't using ADA to get some of the accommodations that they need, oh honey, yes, they are. Um, and so you got to do what you need to do. Now, if you want to do it on the download, because that's maybe what's happening. That's why we don't see other people do it. Then do it on the D, you know, do it on the download. That's okay. But, but you know, don't not do it because it's something that, that you need. Right. So I think it's interesting that the very things that um, other people use to advance themselves, if we use it, it's, it's seen as something possibly detrimental or we internalize it as something um, detrimental. So um, I think we can really kind of spread more around, no, use these tools, pick up the phone, give people a call. They say, no, they say, no, it's 50%. They're going to say no or yes, you know, it's 50% chance. So not asking is a hundred percent. No, exactly. Right? And, and then also I tell people to like, they'll say, oh, I call him and he doesn't, um, he didn't call me back or he didn't email me back. I said, email again and again and again. <laughs> I think these are some really great um, tips for folks. Cause I always am um, thinking about what are some good tips for, for people who are interested in um, leadership roles or interested in doing more in the mental health field and maybe don't have an entree in or don't quite know um, how to take what they have and kind of take it to that next level. I like to think of uh, people with lived experience having opportunities to do what they feel called to do and what they have the core gift for, because lots of times, you know, it might be, um, oh, you have lived experience, let me pigeonhole you into peer support, but you may suck at that, quite frankly, (laughs) right? And, or you may not have the heart for it or the calling for it um, and have a heart or calling or a skill gift uh, for something completely different in which you can still use that lived experience to inform that work that you're doing. I mean, I'm like, I wish we could um, develop more people with lived experience who are HR directors. Exactly. Lots of times people want to, you know, count how many, how many peers do you have? And I said, well, why don't we um, count how many people with lived experience are involved in working within our system? If we have more than Let's just make up a number. I'm not saying any system in particular, but if we have more than 5,000 employees and if one in five people are affected by a mental health condition at some point, I would hope we have about one in a fifth of that 5,000 having some kind of lived experience and using it in a variety of ways. System transformation isn't going to happen by a handful of peers. It has to happen throughout the entire system. I've had people say to me, why do you need to say that you have lived experience? Like, why can't you just mm-hmm. be Sherelle? Like, why do you, why do you need to point that out? Mm-hmm. Yes, I get asked that <laughs> lots of times. And sometimes, Sherelle, I forget 
when like one time, like if they, if people ask me to go, oh, come and talk about blah, 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 blah. And we'd love to hear your lived experience story. I'm like, mm. right. Um, and so I, I have to think about how am I going to integrate my story or a piece of my story and what it is I'm presenting versus the presentation being my story, which is a little bit different. And I'll never forget one time Nami Glendale asked me to come and speak and I'm speaking about, I don't even remember what, I think it was probably peer support or mental health reform or something like that. And they're like, but wait, aren't you a person with lived experience? I was like, well, yeah. Well, you never talked about that. You didn't even tell us what your diagnosis is. And I'm like, ah, I didn't. And I'm thinking, can you tell me why that would be helpful for you? Right. And, um, you know, it was people who wanted to have hope for their loved ones, quite frankly. It was, it was a large family group, that, that particular group. And so the way I think about it is the disclosure is with intention to serve some sort of purpose. It's not just to disclose for the sake of disclosing. I feel, I feel the same way. I mean, I disclose. The first intention is though really to to highlight the issue right mm-hmm. so i just know too many people that have lost their lives because of feeling the need to keep it all in mm-hmm. and you know their families feeling the need to keep everything secret mm-hmm. and because of that i just feel like it's important to say if one other person feels comfortable then to feel more comfortable about who they are that just is more meaningful to me than anything else, right? Yeah. Um, but I think for me sometimes, but going into the detail of the story, because I actually have a sister. She, she, um, my sister is Tona Buck, and she's uh, she's very she's a total extrovert, you know, motivational speaker, amazing woman. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to meet her. Mm-hmm. She's uh, her whole issue uh, and platform is around sexual uh, assault and abuse survivors, because mm-hmm. we're, we're both uh, survivors. And uh, so she's completely out and completely open. And so I was doing a pod, I was supposed to be doing a podcast, and I was talking a lot about my experiences with uh, suicide and, and and being a Black woman and mm-hmm. what that meant, you know, mm-hmm. in my family. And... Unfortunately, I ended up not doing it with them because I overheard them say when I listened to the recording that, oh, she talks about this all the time. And I was just like, I actually don't. I don't. I don't talk about it all the mm-hmm. time. But because you said that, it actually gave me pause and, I'm, and it, it makes me wonder, like, why, why do I need to share it with you today? Yeah. Yeah. And you do know, they understand the power of the share? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Because there's going to be that one person who's going to hear it or more, and it's going to make a difference. And I think that's the exactly. other reason that, um, you know, I know it was so critically important for me to um, hear Jackie McKinney speak because, you know, I hadn't seen anybody who looked like me, yet there were all of me sitting here in this audience of uh, service recipients, everybody, you know, black and brown sitting in the audience, but up on stage, nada. There was not a, you know, chocolate chip, a brown spot. There was nothing, whatever euphemisms we want to use. There were no black people on stage. There were no Latino people on stage. And I thought, mm, no. recovery must not be for us. Exactly. Now to have anybody think that is problematic and needs to be changed. And it was Ron Bassman. I couldn't remember who it was the other day, but it was Ron. Do you know Ron Bassman? 
of all, yes, of all people, yes. Ron Bassett, right? But he had written this great article about the next wave being needed to be youth because all of the leaders at that time were the kind of founders, the founding mothers, fathers, even grandma, you know, Judy Chamberlain and the like. Um, and so he said, where are the youth? And he was right, like, where were they at the time? And then he said, and where are the people of color? And again, 100% right. So I reached out to him exactly. and he introduced me to Jackie McKinney. So people need to hear the stories to aid in their recovery, to be able to see themselves in this journey of health, wellness, and being able to see an example of, oh, wow, you know, if they overcame that challenge, if, if they're able to work through some of the difficulties on the recovery journey, maybe I can too, or they can help me think through, how can I do this? Yeah, which is why peer support is so critically important too. So I'm, exactly. I'm glad you you speak up and you speak out unapologetically, a black unicorn. Oh, yes. <laughs> and so if there was like one thing that um, there's just so many things I want to go more in depth with uh, you in, but uh, if there's one thing that you know we could share or you could share with uh, folks who may be going through similar struggles to give them some hope, um, or if there's what, number one, what would that be? And if there's one reform thing that maybe we need to be looking at collectively for black and brown folks, uh, especially those with mental health conditions, what would that be? You know, I, you know, one of the things, and I know that people say this and it's so hard to hear though, when you're in the middle of going through something, but one of the things that if I could just tell people, if you could just hold on and get get through to the next day and not not one day at a time thing just mm. just really kind of hold on thank god i'm still alive right so amen yes but if you if i think about all of those moments where i was very close to not being alive i didn't get a sense of like no one kind of told me that like you know just kind of hold on like you it's, it's going to, it's going to be okay. Yes. Obviously I was blessed to, to have supports along the way. And, and I particularly think that's because I was in college because, you know, when you're in the college system, you can get the counseling and those kind of services. But I really feel like for, um, horrible for people who are in a community, um, particularly black folk in a community who are often turned away from mental health agencies, either because they are not quote unquote sick enough. The other thing is we are so used to, I was telling someone that the other day I was walking my dog. So I have now two uh, Labradoodles, oh. Rose and Flora, and they just turned one. And so I'm walking them and I guess it's actually called Paraline Trail, like right behind where I live. And immediately I noticed a, what I thought was a motorcycle in the, in the bushes. Mm. As I get closer, it's an ATV. As I walk closer, I see where a, the ATV entered the bush. And mm -hmm. my dogs are going this way. I happen to step over and I see a body. And this mm. happened on uh, Tuesday at 3.30. And mm. I see a body of a 43-year-old male um, who got thrown off the ATV. And I call my neighbors who are uh, firefighters and ask them to just come and help me. Because I, don't, I, don't, I didn't know that person was dead. I, I think the yeah. person could have been sleeping for all I knew. 
Um, so they they called and they 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 checked on that person. And I I tell that story because sometimes we just don't even know like from day to day like what our you know what our moments are going to be. Yeah. And someone said, Sherelle, aren't you traumatized from seeing the body? And I said, child, I had to go get on the Zoom. (laughs) (laughs) I had to hurry up and get back to get on the Zoom meeting. And then I have to do grant review. And then I have to do this. And I said, I have so much trauma stored up in this body here that sometimes we don't even get a chance to even sit and deal with like what's going on. So when we show up at these mental health um, centers, all they want to say is we got goals. Yeah. (laughs) Like you must be doing better than me because if you're able to run all that and still survive, then you're doing okay. But to be honest, many of us are suffering and we do need that support. And we do need people to listen and we need people to be there. So I want to say this to like mental health care providers, you know, don't just think that we are like superwomen, you know, and that we don't need like supports because we do need them. And, and for, you know, other black women, like it's okay. Like it's okay not to be always on top of everything. And yes. actually being on top of everything is, you know, need to check that too, because yes. that's, that's a sign of something too, right? Yes, exactly. And just really having that permission though, to be able to talk about it because, because at the same time, I still got my grandmother in the back of my head who's saying like, girl, if you don't pick that bag up and keep moving, (laughs) you know, so. It's their pressure, right? It's it's that pressure of succeeding, code switching, living in the world and, you know, meeting the obligations and paying the rent and all those things while living Black in America or living Black anywhere, quite frankly. Um, you know, it's it's all of that, yet we have to keep on going and we do keep on going yet and still, you know, we're suffering at the same time. So I so appreciate the message. Sometimes being an unapologetically Black unicorn, eh, we need to take a, we need to take a rest. <laughs> You know, we need to put down our horn, you know, and maybe just be a horse for half a second and then put the horn back on. Right. So I just want to thank you for those beautiful messages and thank you for the work that you do and just being unapologetic about that work and being truthful and authentic. And, you know, we are here, um, you know, for people. Uh, and, and I had a psychologist when I um, had the same experiences of wanting to end, you know, my life used to say, I will hold the hope for you. Yeah. And I, I was just like, that is the stupidest shit. I, what the hell? <laughs> That's the stupidest shit I ever heard. And then I would go home and go, oh, wait, I can't do anything because he's holding the hope for me. Amen. Yes. You know, it was so powerful, even though I couldn't understand why it meant something. And I knew I had to kind of like try to make it through the next day. So I do want to say, you know, when we talk about, you know, um, you know, harming oneself or, you know, if you have those kind of feelings or please do reach out to the Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. We do want to make sure that you're safe because you're valued, you're loved, and we want you here. So thank you, Sherelle, for your time. I bow down before you. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. 
best uh, birthday uh, present ever. Thank you so much. Same here. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Have a wonderful rest of your day and look forward to seeing you next week. <laughs>